Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Hey everyone, and welcome to Raising Parents, the Parenting Science Insights podcast, produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Dina Sargent. Now, let's get started. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode. So we're talking about resilience in children, and I know that we have spoken about this before and spoken a little bit about what's it about, but now we're talking to two experts who have done this for years, who have spoken about this for a long time, written books on it. Uh, We're joined by Bob Brooks and Sam Goldstein. So thank you so much for both of you for joining me today. Pleasure. Thanks for having us. It's the first time we've had a dual guest on any show of held by our company. So it's a very interesting experience for us. Um, so yes, please be aware that there are two people joining us today and from whereabouts are you guys from again? I live in the Boston area. Okay. And I'm in Salt Lake City. And I can tell you that, that uh, your first foray in having two guests, we're gonna spoil you because Bob and I are just very good at two guests. Well, that's very good to hear. I pretty much feel like I'm probably not going to say a word this entire episode, and I am very happy about that because it's very early in the morning for me and coffee has yet to kick in. So (laughs) I think it's a very good thing. (laughs) Well, what Sam didn't say is if we're not good, it's the last time you'll have two guests. That's right. Yes. So you guys are the guinea pigs today on the show. So. I think it's the best it's the best duo I've probably ever seen on a podcast. So I'm very excited to have you guys both speak. Thank you. Um, so I would love to know a little bit more about how you got you both got into it, because it's not something that you're just sort of it's not a job that you see as a career profession sort of in schools or um, talking about kids all the time. So what both what got you both into it? Sam, why don't you start and tell how we met? Sure. So, so Bob <clears throat> starts working as a clinical psychologist a very, very long time ago, and eventually uh, finds himself working with children who were really stressed and really struggling. Mm-hmm. And, and I uh, start working, uh, I was a brain researcher, and then I decided I like children better than rats. And I started a clinic here with a neurologist. So I'm a neuropsychologist. So uh, a neuropsychologist is interested in the process, not so much the diagnostic label. Uh, but I, too, was seeing children with uh, lots of problems. Both of, both of us were seeing Job's children, as it were, from the Bible, children who were carrying lots of, of, of uh, struggles with them. And independently, we both came to realize that the bright star in each of these children wasn't what was wrong with them, but what was right with them. And, and you have to see enough children to, uh, or, or enough examples of anything before the, the, the uh, insight comes to you as to what am I really looking at. And so independently, we both began to realize that what's right is a much better predictor over time than what's wrong. 
and and both of us would speak at at conferences where there was an overlap. And I always enjoyed listening to Bob speak because not only is he a, a, a wonderfully entertaining and inspirational speaker, in fact, some people have called him the Billy Crystal of psychology. Uh, and you can see the resemblance. And um, I always learned something from listening to Bob, and I would assume uh, him listening to me, although my talks were more on uh, more harder science. Uh, and we were at a conference and I proposed to him that we consider writing a book together about what's right, what variables predict good outcome despite adversity. And resilience up to that point had been an academic subject, trying to decide is it better to have one parent or two parents? Is it better uh, to be raised in one kind of a household or another, uh, to have certain kinds of temperament or certain kinds of educational experiences? And I will tell you that I made a very reasonable proposal to Dr. Brooks. At that point, I had authored almost 20 books. He had authored two, I believe. And I offered him the opportunity to work with me. And he very graciously declined. I think more because the last person he worked with wasn't a very enjoyable experience. And Bob, I'll let you finish the story. <laughs> Actually, it was three books. <laughs> but what happened was I mentioned it to my wife at this conference, and she said, you turn Sam down? He really gets things done. And so I called Sam, because of my wife, and for some reason she really was crazy about Sam. And uh, that led to our first uh, book together, uh, which was called Raising Resilient uh, Children. And since then, how many? It's been about 14 books or 15 books that we've done. And since Sam complimented me, just to let you know, the reason this works so well is uh, Sam, my wife is convinced, is cloned four times because he does so much. But we've had such a wonderful relationship in discussing new ideas and uh, really has led us, as we look at the books we did to you know, different themes, uh, just to add a little to what Sam said, what got me very interested in resilience, you look back and you say, what were some of the points? After I finished my postdoctoral fellowship in Denver, I came back to Boston. I worked in the inner city, primarily where there was a great deal of poverty and racism. And I started to wonder, how does someone grow up under racism and poverty? And yet, as adults, they're so hopeful and optimistic. And then, as Sam knows, one of the most challenging jobs I ever had was working at a psychiatric hospital, where my first job there was as principal of the school. And there, too, when we were doing some longitudinal follow-ups, I was amazed how these kids were really doing much better than we would have anticipated. So that led to, as Sam said, more the question of not what makes people, I'll put sick in quotes, but what is it that helps people to be more resilient, even facing great adversity. And that then led us uh, together. And as we might say, the, the rest is history as we talk more about, you know, how do resilient children or adults see the world differently from those who are not? What, are, what can we do as parents and teachers to help kids be resilient? And actually, I think our third or fourth book together, we, because we're getting so many questions uh, from, I think, adults and kids' lives about how they could be resilient, it may have been our third book. Uh, we wrote a book about 
basically resilience across the lifespan. What do we do in our adult lives through our senior years to be resilient? So the ideas we really discussed are throughout the lifespan. And, and let me qualify just so listeners understand because, you know, definitions are, are really important. We throw words around and assume everyone shares the same meaning, but it may not be the case. And what's fascinating about the word resilience is it's a material science term. It means stretching and then returning without any distortion, coming right back to where you were before. Uh, and, and it was used in a limited way uh, in the research of, of people who've since passed away, pioneers like Emmy Werner and Michael Rutter, uh, looking at children who were raised under great adversity, but managed to function uh, and overcome. So resilience is not an outcome. It's a process by which you continue to function over time and function well over time. And that's different from recovery. It, it, people still don't completely understand it. And as Bob mentioned, our first book, which still sells so well that the publisher has resisted doing a second edition of it, it's in its 30th printing or something. Uh, the title was Raising Resilient Children, and we received quite a bit of pushback from publishers uh, that didn't feel the title would fit, that people wouldn't understand the title. And, and if, you, if you do one of those searches on the web, where you look at how a word is used and where it's used, and it makes that interesting picture. Uh, after the 9-11 tragedy, then uh, President Bush stood on the rubble of the Twin Towers, and he used the word. Uh, and now the word is so uh, widely disseminated that there's a, a popular makeup called resilience. And every, everybody uses the word. I wish Bob and I had a, a nickel for you know, we had a, a copyright or a patent on the word. And, but just to also to clarify about what we've done, Bob and I have not done large-scale population-based studies on resilience or even small clinical publishable studies per se. My research, those kinds of studies are in things like autism and other childhood disorders. What I think we've done is two things. One, we've created a series of books on everything from homework to helping kids with anxiety to our recent book on the seven instincts that make us human, uh, our new children's book that I showed you some illustrations from, uh, that brings the material in a palatable and understandable way to people so that they can use it. But the other thing we've done, and, and Bob will tell you, I sort of dragged him into it, is the other side of it is we've been very good at organizing the research. Uh, the third edition of our handbook in resilience just came out, and it's almost unheard of for a scientific textbook, a clinical textbook, to have a third edition. Uh, and our third edition just came out. And the last edition, I think, had a million downloads, a million chapter downloads in libraries across the world. So I'm very proud both of the work we've done in in, in, in disseminating knowledge to the general population, but also in organizing the science in a way that our colleagues can use it as opposed to, in, in some cases, misuse it. Hmm. And just to pick up on what Sam said, one of the challenges, Dina, was, you know, we know some of the research 
is how to translate in a way where someone, say the lay person could pick it up and immediately say, I'm really understanding this. And a lot of our books, the trade books for the lay public, we have a lot of dialogues in there, what the parents said, what the child said, what we may have said. And I think that helps people to know our way of thinking about it. And also, you know, the compliments we've gotten is it helps them to see when you would say something, when you won't, but it's all rooted in research. So we share with people, why would we say this? Why would we suggest uh, this? So, it, you know, we've done textbooks, like Sam mentioned, the Handbook of Resilience in Children, but for the lay public, we've tried to make it where someone who didn't even know anything about resilience could pick it up and say, I can do this with my child, or I could do this for myself. And, and before we're done today, um, <laughs> we're, we're going to give you an exclusive. We're going to tell you the title of the new book we've just started working on. We just signed a contract. And uh, we'll see what you think about it and what your listeners think about it. Yes. No, I'm very excited to see that. I think we've got we've got a whole block of time at the end where that's just for you guys. So that could <laughs> definitely be the space. Um, so going back to a few of the books that you've written, one of the books that I did sort of read into and look into is The Power of Resilience. And looking into the preface of that, I was looking into, I loved how you added a real life experience of Ray Charles, Ray Charles, I think it was, mm -hmm. and sort of his life and his growth into resilience and just the things that he's had to overcome. So how important to you is it to have that real life experience in books um, and interview these people, uh, these children who have grown into adults and sort of overcome a lot of strife throughout their life. Do you want to take that, Sam, and I'll add to it? Oh, sure. Well, I, I, if you read the uh, the preface of our books, uh, a lot of our stories are compilations. Some are true, complete stories, and some we've taken pieces to try and and illustrate to people a particular theme or a particular idea. And, and the stories uh, range uh, from just brief vignettes to, in our uh, uh, Tenacity book, uh, themes that we pick up again. Tenacity starts with a, a story of a boy that I saw when he was six years old with high-functioning autism, very bright, but clearly very autistic. And he comes back to see me 35 years later after I'd worked with him. And it's this, the book starts with the story of why he comes back to see me and ends with the story of, you know, what happens to him and why it happens to him. I do think we, we, uh, we learn as human beings in very different ways. You know, we, we say you can't learn to swim by sitting on the side of the pool. But we have motor neurons in our brain that fire when we watch people do things. So you can learn by doing, you can learn by watching, you can learn by listening, you can learn by discussion. We learn in lots of different ways. And I think Bob and I, the formula that we've tried to uh, invest in our trade books is to help people learn by listening to other people's stories, by providing practical guideposts, 
by offering ideas of, of obstructions, things that will get in the way. We've tried to create a framework to help people learn in various ways in, in a foundation in which we think people learn best. And just to add to that, you know, I, I, as in terms of the question, Dean, I was thinking so much of it, even though some may be compilations, so many of the ideas really arise from the interactions we have whether I know in my case, and Sam has a lot of varied experience too, whether it's sitting one-to-one with an individual or being the principal of a school in a psychiatric hospital and looking at kids and how they behave or hearing the stories of parents and what might help them. So you're right. I think all all of what's in there is predicated on great part also on the experiences we've had. As someone once said to me, you've really been in the trenches. And they meant it as a compliment that you really, it's not just you're talking about theory, it's based on people's stories. And everyone has a story. And that's why we, our books in one sense are a number of stories make, you know, that suggest or uh, exemplify different principles of resilience. The, the other thing I'll say that I'm uh, proud of for Bob and I is that if you partial out our, our textbooks from our trade books, a lot of authors, and we're both New Yorkers, Bob and I, uh, we grew up not far from each other. Bob's 10 years older than me. Um, you wouldn't know. I know it I don't look it, so. You, know, you, wouldn't know <laughs> it by looking, you wouldn't know it by looking at him, but I, I, you know, I will tell you that together we're over 150 years old, and most people are astounded to, to find that out. Um, but, but what I'm really proud of is the series of trade books we've done uh, have not just been a rehash of the previous book. Well, let's find a slightly different angle and, and write the same book again so people will purchase it. I'm very proud of the fact that, that we've really uh, progressed from uh, writing about the qualities that help people uh, be stress-hardy and deal with and overcome adversity to uh, the self-regulation and self-discipline qualities that are necessary to uh, to do what needs to be done, even when you'd rather do something else, to our our latest foray, uh, the idea of that 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 we as humans carry a set of instincts that that make us who we are and have have gotten us to where we are, uh, and and we now call that combination right. Uh, what did we call it, Bob? The uh, a triad of human development. Is that yes. what we said? It? Yeah. Uh, well, you were the one who developed that idea. So triad. We triad of yeah. Yeah, triad of human development: resilience, self-discipline, and the instincts of tenacity. No, that's a very. I love. I love that definition. Then that sort of sort of really sums up what a person or what a child sort of faces and grows into to be an adult that I think, especially with the word resilient, and I think, like you said earlier, everyone has a very different definition as to what resilience is to them. Um, I think just having that sort of idea of what resilience is to you, I think it's really hard definition to sort of have for myself, especially when you come up with, okay, it's, facing all these difficulties and just sort of powering through it. And that's Mm. sort of what one person's definition to resilience is. 
but another could be a completely different scale as to how they see it as. So looking at the term resilience and looking at the whole idea that we're sort of talking about today, how is that linked to how you raise a child? Well, should I, I'll, I'll take this one uh, first. Okay. <laughs> we, you know, we collaborated so long, we probably know what we're going to say uh, here. Uh, it's a wonderful question because some of the initial research on resilience was to look at adults who had grown up under great adversity. Uh, and what Sam and I really looked at is the following. What have we learned? And I hope I'm putting this, uh, Sam can correct me if I'm not, but what have we learned from the studies of people who have grown up under great adversity and resilient? What, what helped them to be resilient? And can we share what helped them to be resilient, which led us to the concept of a resilient mindset? Can we share that with someone who has a baby who's two months old? That there are certain things that we could look at, even if your child has not faced great adversity, that will help them to develop a resilient mindset. And so what we did, and this was really a fun part, was to look at what are some of the main things that help people develop a resilient mindset. Actually, Denny, you read the, the adult book, The Power of Resilience. And in there, if you looked at the chapters for raising resilient children and the chapter headings for the power of resilience, they're the same because it's like throughout the lifespan, uh, it, you know, it's the same principles. Just to give you one example, and there are several, because I think we have like 10 aspects of the mindset. One of the things we also looked at was what today might be called social emotional uh, development. But when I was writing one of my first books, this was pre-SAM, uh, and it was about school climate, I was amazed how many people, when I did a questionnaire, it was very informal, one of the most positive memories of school was when they were asked to help out. Like, I remember when a teacher asked me to pass out the milk and straws. I remember when a teacher asked me to tutor a younger child. And in our book, Raising Resilient Children, we said, which we would collaborate on in our book in Tenacity, we said, within each child, there seems to be this wish to help. Like, right up, you know, this drive to help. And as we shared different clinical examples of people we had worked with, we both realized that a very good therapeutic strategy was when kids, especially who felt very poorly about themselves, had gone through a lot, when they were engaged in helping others. So when I started going up to do more work in schools, I would one of the first questions I would say is, of say about a patient, what is one thing this patient does at school which helps him or her feel that they are making a positive difference? And I know in the book, The Power of Resilience, we have a whole chapter because even in our adult lives, we know it helps people to be resilient when they're helping others. So that's one of the aspects of the mindset. And from an early age, we said parents can help kids, you know, engage kids in helping others, even saying, I could use your help right now. And the power of even that one strategy is, is something I think that should never be underestimated. So that's how we, as we started to share ideas, they could be translated into specific uh, strategies or interventions or just natural things that come up in parenting. Let me, um, in response to your question, go back a step foundationally on a, on a, on a statistical basis. 
So one of the tests I've developed is called the RISE, the Risk, Inventory, and Strengths Evaluation. And it's one of the only instruments in uh, uh, nine to 25-year-olds that measures uh, engagement in risky behavior like delinquency or drug use, uh, but also measures uh, assets, strengths. And when you ask a broad range of questions, uh, and then you, you conduct what's called an exploratory factor analysis, mean, meaning you look to see, I might ask 50 questions, but I might find that those questions are really asking about two different topics in different ways. Does that make sense? So how you answer one question might very well predict how you might answer another. When you do that with what we're referring to here as resilience or stress hardiness, uh, you always come with three protective factors. And, and those are how you see yourself, your sense of self, how you see your connections to other people, and your sense of emotional regulation. Now, we call it that. Different researchers call it different things. But it always factors out to those three. But then the next question is, okay, if it factors out to those three, what do what what experiences, because it's biopsychosocial, there's some genetics to it. Some people are just more stress hardy than others. But what kinds of experiences under what categories would enhance that sense of, of capability, of mastery, your sense of self, or enhance that sense of connections to other people? And, and then we get down to uh, helping kids learn to be optimistic or solve problems or have empathy or to be fair. So, so while all those qualities enhance your ability to be resilient, they really fall under this umbrella of who am I, how do I connect to the world around me, and how do I regulate myself, if that makes sense. So for parents, when I talk to parents, we start with the big three. Let's talk about, and I've done this all day today because right now here in Salt Lake, it's almost six o'clock. I saw families and kids all day long. Um, you know, what? tell me about your child's sense of capability and mastery. Tell me about their sense of connections to others. This afternoon, I, I visited with a 20-year-old boy with autism who's very bright. I haven't seen him in seven years. He wants to go to college. He wants to receive accommodations. He needs an updated report. Uh, and he, he's very bright, but he, he's completely disconnected from other people. He doesn't really have any sense of connection. And I know when we look at the, the, the two-thirds, the half to two-thirds of, of intelligent people with autism who don't work, the reason isn't because they don't acquire work-related skills, but because they don't know how to relate to people. And so I talk to parents about those three, and then we, we branch out, what can we do to help your child have a greater sense of mastery or greater connection to others? or better emotional regulation. And that's when these qualities, whether it's self-discipline, you know, if you leave your self-discipline home one day, you might have a fun day in Melbourne, but eventually there's a price to pay, right? Yeah. Um, so, so how do we enhance that kind of self-discipline? And how do we enhance your sense of self and your sense of connection to others? And that's really the theme that runs through all of our, our books. 
whether it's the tenacity book or the self-discipline book or the resilience books, it's the same underlying theme. So, you know, Bob was talking about the applied. I just wanted to lay a little foundation that we didn't just make this stuff up, right? We're not, we didn't just get together one day and say, hey, this is a good idea. Let's tell everybody they should do this. Because isn't that true for our society? Everybody's an expert, tells everybody else how to live, how to feel, what to do. We don't come from that perspective. We come from, these are qualities that have demonstrated effectiveness. These are our voices we hear again and again in people who've transitioned successfully despite adversity. We try and suggest that what we're offering is science, and science has taken a bad name in the last three years around the world. We're not that kind of scientists. And again, just to emphasize and pick up on something Sam said, which I think is very important, especially when adults, whether parents or teachers, wonder what kind of impact they could have. In, in some of the research, it shows that one of the most important things in resilience, whether kids are going to become resilient, has to do with connections. Sam mentioned this with people who are supportive and encouraging. Uh, and, you know, one of my heroes, who he died of about 25 years ago, Julius Siegel, a psychologist, he called that, he said, in order for kids to be resilient, I don't want to overly simplify this, they, they must have in their lives the presence of what he called the charismatic adult. And sometimes I almost wish he hadn't used the word charismatic. It may have different, you know, meanings to different people. But I love his definition. It's an adult from whom a child or adolescent gathers strength. And by the way, even as adults, as in the power of resilience, we say that even as adults, we need charismatic adults in our lives. Uh, because if you don't have them, then it's very difficult for kids to develop some of the skills we feel and outlook we feel go into a resilient mindset. That's what led us also, uh, you know, I had started it, but uh, then when Sam and I really elaborated on it, uh, I had this experienced 40 years ago where I felt too many of my interviews just focused on what's wrong with people and rather than their strengths. And it was, I would get depressed after meeting with parents for the first time with teachers. And I remember saying, what would happen if after just 15 minutes or so, you would then say, now that we've heard about a few of the problems, what do you see as your child's strengths, their beauty, or their islands of competence? And that also helped people to start focusing on a person is not defined by their deficits. Sam, in one sense, mentions is what is this, what, what do they enjoy doing? What are their passions? How can we build upon them? And so all of these were rooted in different experiences we had and that I know both of us have found have been very helpful in our work. Let, let me come back just one second for your listeners, because there's a lot of information here. But one of the things Bob mentioned was that it's important for each of us to have someone in our lives that we know is there for us no matter what. It, we, we have a documentary, Tough Times Resilient Kids. It's actually on my website. Uh, we made it some time ago with a large grant. And I can remember some of the kids we talked to discussing who that person was in their life that made a difference for them. But what's also been discovered is it's not enough to have that person in your life, you have to be that person for someone else. It's not enough to just take. You have to give as well. 
And and uh, Bob is, has a great story of of if you ask a child, uh, uh, if you tell a child, uh, uh, clean up your room, do this, do that, you, you may or may not be successful. But when you ask somebody for help, can you help me do this? I need your help. It's amazing the different response you get from even the most resistant kids. I mean, some of my favorite stories, and Bob's as well, is, you know, is to say to a kid who I can't get to do anything, is that, you know, you're really an expert in not doing what adults tell you. What's your secret? How do you do it? What advice would you have for another kid who wants to be a little more oppositional, but who can't seem to do it? You know, just to turn the tables a little bit. And it's amazing, even from the most difficult kids, when you say, I need your help, even if it's for something silly like that, oh, they rise up to the occasion and they give you, you know, three things you can do. One of the kids wrote a, a little book for me on, uh, you know, 10 ways to make your mother crazy. And the reason he wrote this little book and illustrated it is because I told him, I think he he probably is the kid who could make mothers crazy the fastest. And he came back after that and he said, I'm going to write a book about that because he sees all my, my books. Well, a bunch of my books are on the shelf behind us here and he sees my books. I'm going to write a book. I said, great, write a book about that. That would be great. That is, that is an incredible way of um, sort of teaching your kid, teaching, teaching a child a lesson in a different way. And I think especially when it comes to, I think what we were talking about a little while ago when it comes to resilience and I think you're mentioning something about um, the charismatic adult as well and sort of talking about how important it is to sort of have someone who is, who sort of can, you can want to learn something from. And for me, I think, especially when I was thinking about that, it was really difficult for me to find a person that I saw as a role model for a very long time until um, I became an adult and suddenly I realized that my sister is looking for, my younger sister is looking for a role model. And then I sort of became that for her as I got older, um, became the person that I really wished for as a child. And I think it's it's totally different thing when you sort of become that person for someone else and sort of be that for somebody else and go through what you went through and making sure that they don't do that same mistake, they don't play that same role as you did when you were younger. And especially when it comes to parenting, like you sort of want your child to be better than what you are, to learn from what you learned from. But how do you come up? How do you not have that sort of expectation that you want them to not do the same thing that you did? Because I know like you want them to be better. You want them to be a whole other generation that's a little bit smarter and a little bit um, make the different mistakes than what you did. How do you not sort of set that expectation up for them? And I think set them up for failure in your eyes, I guess. We have a whole chapter in the Raising Resilient Children on learning to accept your children for who they are. Mm -hmm. not what you want them to be. And Sam knows this story. With my own son, Rich, who's very successful today, he did no work in school in the 8th, ninth, 10th, and 11th grades, which was very painful for me because I was lecturing all over the country, the United States, and actually one time in Australia, about how to motivate kids or what you do to motivate kids. And what I realized is he had his own path to take in life. And... What I saw it as, 
I felt his not doing his homework was a reflection of my parenting. And I learned that kids have different paths to, uh, to take in life. I, at open school night, you know, when parents go up, I always wanted to go up for my younger son because he did his homework and let my wife go up for, you know, Richard. I think as parents, and that's why we have a whole chapter in this, is can we accept kids for who they are? That doesn't mean we don't discipline them, we don't set limits, but kids are not brought into this world to make us necessarily feel like good parents. And a lot of families I saw in therapy, one of the disconnects was what the parent wanted the kid to become and what the kid was capable of becoming or interested in becoming in that regard. It's very tough when a kid looks in your eyes and what they see is disappointment. You know, uh, it's very, and that I know with Rich, finally I woke up, my wife actually read some of the books Sam and I wrote. So uh, she had better ideas about raising kids, I guess, than I actually followed through on. When he was a great kid, he had many strengths, these islands of competence. But I was only focusing on, on one thing, uh, you know, and so we could easily say, accept kids for who they are, not what you want them to be. That doesn't mean if they're having a great deal of trouble, you just say, that's fine. But there are different paths that lead to, to success uh, in life. And it's also not just making more money than someone or whatever is really, are they, are they ex experiencing their own joy in what they're doing? So I don't want to sound too philosophical here, uh, but it's, it's not an easy task to accept kids for who they are. And to really let them go, maybe down a different path. Well, and and let me. Uh, Bob knows. I always I always come back on the opposite end. What does it mean to accept them for who they are, if they're clinically depressed, if they're engaging in risky behavior? The the uh, the opening chapter for our handbook of resilience, our second our third edition, is. Uh, uh, studying resilience in times of a pandemic. And, and I'll tell you, and your listeners may or may not be aware, that the last seven generations of kids worldwide, so that's 70 years every 10 years, has had a greater incidence of depression than the previous uh, generation. And just before COVID, uh, teenagers in North America, I think in Australia as well, but I know for sure in North America, had about a one out of five chance of having a major depressive episode before age 18, which means it, it lasts usually a year, can last longer. Uh, once you have one, it kind of kindles a, a physiological response in your body. You're at risk to have a second one, and then at risk to get a membership card and and have episodes of depression throughout your life. Well, uh, the data that's now coming from COVID suggests that that uh, incidence, because incidence means how many people have the problem right now. Mm -hmm. Prevalence means how many people have the problem over time, right? Because some people may get better, some people uh, uh, then become symptomatic. The uh, prevalence of depression right now we think in teenagers in North America is one out of two, 50%, which sounds like a, a, a great opportunity for the pharmaceutical industry or for the mental health field, but neither can keep up. And, and so in our well-meant efforts to prepare the world for our children 
as a society, because this is a, a global village now, this world, as a society, we're failing. And the rates of mental health problems among kids now has risen dramatically since COVID. And our efforts to control a virus, and in your country, it was even more extreme than in the US, uh, the, the untoward effects may be far worse than the effects of the virus had we just let kids go to school and do whatever kids are gonna do. So there is a line here of what do we mean when we say accept your kids for who they are? What we mean is uh, don't try to make them into something that you weren't or that you wish you could have been or that you want them to be, uh, but it doesn't mean that you close your eyes to uh, stress or mental health problems or challenges. It doesn't mean when they say they want to stay up till midnight and they're eight years old, you say, sure, why not? Um, you know, it, it, I, I think you still have to parent and that's become increasingly more challenging today. And we yeah, have a solution. Right. We have a solution right here. <laughs> no, that's why I especially said you can't ignore it. You know, it, it's interesting what Sam said also is one of the things, you know, a lot of our work, I'll say, is how somewhat in what became known as positive psychology, not all of it, but positive psychology doesn't mean you ignore negative feelings. If anything, you have to address them. And if you could also look at strengths, it may be easy to address some of the difficulties that they're having because the child feels that they are accepted. But if a kid is depressed, I think acceptance may be several things. One is also in our book about raising resilient children with autism spectrum disorders is for parents to recognize what do they have control over, what don't they? They may have had no control over a child being born on the autism spectrum. What they may have to learn more and more is, but what they have control over is their attitude and response to that child. How can they help uh, that child? So in no way uh, would it mean ignoring any of the difficulties, but also, unlike when I was first trained, all you looked at were the difficulties with very little given to the uh, strengths and beauty of kids. Mm. Can, can we talk about tenacity? Yeah, go ahead. I would love to hear the definition that you see of tenacity as well, because I think everyone is completely different. Well, let me lay a little foundation first. Um, every time we do a book, uh, I get this anxious feeling that it could be our last book. Uh, <laughs> and so as soon as we finish one book, I pitch Bob, we're going to do this book, or we're going to do that, that book. <laughs> And we have a number of publishers who are uh, very supportive of anything we want to do, whether it's textbooks or whether it's trade books. So uh, we didn't have a trade book for a number of years. Uh, and I started collecting uh, research on instincts. So human beings have instincts, not like a bird building a nest or a salmon swimming upstream, but patterns of behavior that enhance survival, at least in, in Homo sapiens, a half a million years, or on a, in our hominid ancestors, a million, million and a half years. Uh, things like empathy, responsibility, fairness, uh, ways of behaving that increase the chances that you would survive. Uh, and I told Bob that I came to a point where I think we're ready to write about it. 
and I uh, identified seven uh, instincts, some of which were related to our previous writing, although we hadn't written about it as an instinct, more as a behavior, uh, and three of which that I thought uh, helped our ancestors uh, uh, evolve and survive and get to where we are today, but were going to be the end of us if we didn't do something about them. And in fact, the, the, uh, the first way I wanted to pitch the book was on this unholy trinity of instincts that's going to be the end of us. But uh, everyone said it's too negative. So we saved it for a last chapter in the book, and we created this tenacity in children. The title, and correct me if I'm wrong, Bob, but I wanted to find a word that no one had used. You know, it, sometimes I'll read something or I'll listen to something, and the person writing or, or speaking will use the word resilience as if they invented it. And there, all, all Bob and I have is our intellectual property. And whenever I speak, you heard Bob mention Julius Siegel. He didn't have to do that. He could have said, oh, this is my idea. But we are uh, respectful of the intellectual property of others, just like we want people to be respectful for us. And it's gotten to the point where, uh, yeah, there, there are people who know who we are, uh, but a lot of people think they invented resilience. And so I went looking for a word that no one had ever used. And I searched and I searched and I found tenacity, which means the kind of the, the stick-to-itiveness to stay the course no matter what challenges come your way, right? It's not resilience. It's not functioning. It's staying the course. Uh, and I, I searched and found that there was one fictional book written about it with that title and nothing else. So that's why tenacity. Yeah. And okay. just to quickly fill this in, to show you really the, really the respect we have for each other, Sam brought this up and, and even had, I think, like a tenacious mindset. And my, I was very intrigued, but I felt, uh, we remember Sam said each book builds on each other. I was concerned, Ina, that is this just a rehash of raising resilient children? And Sam went into, we had a lot of dialogues, and then COVID basically hit, and I had much more time. And I became fascinated by the research Sam had, and then I found some more about, and this was really important, about a lot of the things that we feel are these very positive attributes that help us to survive, like Sam mentioned, compassion, empathy, fairness, they're, they're there, they're in, basically there from birth. And as one of the reviewers who endorsed our book said, what that said basically is you don't have to plant the seeds, the seeds are there already. What we have to do as adults is to nurture these seeds. And the research fascinated me that already at a few months old, children are showing the rudiments of empathy and compassion. And, you know, at, by a year old, they're already showing actions that suggest altruism. And, and this, this is from birth. So it's very exciting uh, in that regard uh, in terms of writing this book and saying there's some wonderful, you know, instincts there. And then Sam had his, well, the unholy trinity. The unholy trinity. Yeah, that was the last chapter. Instincts that served our generations many, many thousands of years ago to survive. 
but while they exist now, they really are very, it could be very unholy and cause a great deal of problems. I'll tell you those three, and then maybe we could we could just touch on the seven, and, and each of us has a favorite one we like to talk about, and maybe we could talk about that. But so the unholy, so imagine it's a million years ago or 500,000 years ago, your awareness about the world is pretty limited. It gets dark. How do you know it's ever going to become light again? Or it hasn't rained and you don't have any water. How do you know there'll eventually be water? Uh, those of our ancestors who survived developed the capacity for belief. You had to believe, otherwise you couldn't function, right? And belief is the foundation of the formation of, of religion. Uh, and and this is not an anti-religion talk because this has nothing to do with religion. Uh, but if you look at the world today, uh, I have a saying, belief's a valuable ally in the absence of fact. But some people just dog in a dogmatic way hold on to their beliefs even when the facts are on the table. And you can see what rigid belief, uh, politics, religion, COVID, Whatever the case is, you can see how it's tearing the world apart. Here in the United States, political beliefs, a lot of it, uh, uh, erroneous beliefs on both sides, are just kind of tearing our society apart. So one is belief. It got us where we are, but now it's created more problems. The second is a fear of difference. Because 300,000 years ago, you didn't venture across the valley to the other tribe because they would see you as a source of food. There was no hesitation in eating, you know, other uh, uh, others of your kind if they weren't within your tribe. Uh, and look at how that fear of difference, how we are afraid of anything different, skin color, religious belief. What, again, it's out of control. And finally, what I call brain dancing, which is uh, a term coined by uh, a famous anthropologist uh, that, that implies that. It, at any given moment, any of us could lose control. And, and uh, to real aggression, to perceived aggression, we respond aggressively. So belief, fear of difference, and an aggressive response to any problem. I'll challenge you to look at the news today and tell me that in one way or another, those three phenomena, which are instinctual, meaning something you come to the world with that are shaped one way or the other, that those three phenomena are not responsible in a major way for, for so many things that are wrong in the world. And, and what Bob and I are offering, what we believe, is that by helping children and each other reinforce these seven positive instincts that far outweigh the others, that's how we're going to deal with them. We're, the, the idea of of an adverse belief, of a fear of difference, of an aggressive response. We are an aggressive species. That's how we, that's how we got here. A uh, uh, hundred thousand years ago, if Bob wouldn't share his food with me, I hit him over the head with a big stick and I took his food. And, we and are really old. And aggressive <laughs> was a way of, of, of surviving, but not today. And, and that's what we're arguing is that, is that we can fix what's wrong in the world. We can make it better but not by trying to legislate it or mandate it or force it on people or pretend we have to teach it to people. No, we just have to recognize these seven instincts in ourselves 
uh, and, and in each other and make an effort to reinforce them. So what are these seven instincts? Um, I know that you, I think you mentioned earlier that you both have a favorite. You both have one that you would love to focus on. Uh, one of my favorites is actually compassionate empathy. Is that what we call it? I don't know. Right. Uh, so, so I'll tell you just quickly because I have it in front of me. Yeah, so well, I yeah you have it in front of me. <laughs> well, we well, wrote because, a book. Remember it right away. But let me tell you what we did. So yeah. we wanted a to make it ours. As we've gone along, we've tried to be a little more savvy about creating terminology that is identified immediately with, with, with our work. So we took a word like optimism and put intuitive in front of it. Intuitive optimism. Uh, motivation, intrinsic motivation, not external, but motivation comes from inside. Empathy, we put compassionate in front of it, compassion and empathy, uh, altruism, genuine altruism, doing it for no secondary gain whatsoever, responsibility, virtuous responsibility, fairness, measured fairness, being fair, but not so fair that it harms you. And finally, simultaneous intelligence, which I will explain in a minute. So we, we put a modifier in front of each of these uh, terms optimism, empathy, responsibility that everybody's very familiar with. But we put that modifier because we want to define it in a specific way. Mm -hmm. So which and, one is, so which well, one is sort of book, one that you offer, love to? Well, in the book, I'm we sorry. Are, I'm sorry, we offer parents uh, an understanding of what it is. We explain the research that we didn't just make this up. Mm -hmm. And then we give them guideposts to create experiences for their children that will bring these out even in the most challenging child. Because some children have no sense of responsibility, no sense of empathy. But if you're patient, eventually you can make those genes express themselves. Well, just, just to give you an example, uh, and Sam could go into simultaneous trans, uh, intelligence, uh, but compassion and empathy, actually, as we were looking at it, empathy, as we know, I, I don't want to overly simplify it, the ability to put yourself in the shoes of another person and see the world through their eyes. But by adding compassion, actually some people who said they are separate, empathy is trying to understand someone, compassion is actually being of help to them. You know, and we were talking about that before. And the other things we always try to do in our books is to have, say, parents or a, a caregiver think about questions that will help them to be more empathic. So just to give you, Dina, very quickly, we, we have these questions in the book. What words do you hope your children will use to describe you? Because every kid has words to describe the parents. What do you intentionally say or do so they're likely to use these words? <coughs> do you think the words they use will actually be the ones you hope they use? And especially, I know in my clinical practice or in workshops, it gets people to do a lot of thinking. How am I coming across? You know, it got me to think about when I when my son Rich was not doing homework. The, the moment I came home, the first question I asked him is, did you do your homework yet? Why would you start with a question that immediately aroused negative feelings? And I kid with parents, but I said, how would you like it if you came home from work and your first thing your kid said is, did you finish all your work at work today? Because if you didn't, there's no television for you tonight. And if you worked harder, we could live better. And they laugh, but what we have to realize is we model empathy. 
And when I ask those questions, as funny as they may be, that's how kids often experience, did you do your work today? Because all you're focusing on is one aspect rather than saying, I love you or something else before you get into that. So we also develop very specific questions to think about that could help us to be more you know, empathic. And also in terms of say, compassion, empathy, do our, do our kids see us modeling that? You know, how would they describe us? So the compassion, empathy is one that, I, you know, it's like asking who's your favorite child. <laughs> All of these are very important. They overlap to some what, but as one of uh, Sam, the simultaneous intelligence is for me was a very important addition, and I'll turn it to Sam. So, so, 120 years ago, <laughs> unfortunately, intelligence was defined as how much you knew, because the earliest studies in trying to define intelligence decided to study children in school who are doing well versus who weren't. And obviously the kids doing well had a, a broader range of knowledge at their disposal. And that myth of intelligence has continued until, oh, maybe the last 15 or 20 years. And, and we, we stand on a very exciting time in which we now appreciate that intelligence is a malleable concept. It's not set in stone. And that intelligence isn't about how much you know but how well you solve problems. And the term simultaneous comes uh, from the work of A.R. Luria, who is a Russian neuropsychologist. He's since passed away, the father of neuropsychology. And Luria coined this term simultaneous to describe what critical thinking in human beings is all about. So uh, if your listeners have been uh, uh, multitasking while they're listening to this, they should stop and just think about this. So listen to what I'm going to tell you. So um, uh, what does simultaneous mean? It means seeing all the pieces at the same time. If I say 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, you only need to know 10 to predict 12. It's a predictable sequence. If I say 1, 3, 6, 10, 15, think about it, Dina. 1, 3, 6, 10, 15. Got a guess for what number comes next? I could not tell you. I have a hard time forming the first three words together. <laughs> three okay. numbers together. You on the spot. No, that's okay. Next number is 21. Okay. To see that, you have to simultaneously appreciate how every number relates to every other number. If I take a number out of the pattern, you can't figure it out. If I give you 10 facts about an animal and you randomly pick three, you might choose an animal that matches the three, doesn't match the remaining seven. Intelligence in our species, 100,000, 200,000 years ago, what was intelligence all about? It was about scanning the environment, seeing danger, knowing where there was sustenance, knowing where there was shelter. It was about solving patterns, solving problems by seeing patterns, in the environment. And that's really what intelligence is all about. And, and when we, in fact, I have a test called the cognitive assessment system that measures intelligence that way. It's a series of tasks. And we've evaluated aboriginal children in the outback and affluent children in suburbia 
And it doesn't matter where you are, what your culture is, whether you're living at the poverty level or in great affluence, doesn't make a difference. At the same age, kids perform exactly the same way on these tasks, regardless of their skin color, regardless of what they've learned in school, because it's not about what they've learned or acquired. It's about how they can solve an abstract problem they've never seen before. Circle, square, circle, square, empty space. What comes next? Red circle, red square, green circle, green square, blue circle. What comes next? Now two variables. You keep increasing variables. A true measure of intelligence is you know what you have to do, but you can't figure out any longer how to do it. When we define intelligence that way, the differences between ethnic groups, between cultures, between societies, almost 100% washes away. When we define intelligence that way, we demonstrate that we can teach children to think critically. Sure, we're not going to make geniuses out of everyone, but we demonstrate that when you teach children to think in a critical way, they generalize what they learn, they take it other places, and their grades go up and their, their scores go up, and their ability to apply knowledge to solve problems improves. This is a wonderful time in which we're slowly in education realizing that we have erroneously categorized children by who's smart and who's not, by what they know, not how well they can solve problems. And when you do that, regardless of our skin color, regardless of where we live or who raised us, we really are all the same pretty exciting. No, that sounds really interesting. I think especially in terms of when you put a child in a school, you expect them to take what they learned from a school and put something into it. You, There's no prior knowledge. There's no, okay, what do you already know? Like you start from, um, for here in Australia, it's you start from prep and you're basically taught everything that you're supposed to know at that certain grade level. And everyone sort of has to know things at that grade level. It doesn't really matter whether you you are learning more than that, whether you've really learned it or anything like that. There is no like prior knowledge that's sort of expected. And I've got a lot of friends who are um, prep teachers who work in like primary school and they just say that the kids that get thrown in there, they are so well, they are so talented in so many other aspects, but because they don't fit in with the curriculum that's sort of set in place, they're not, they're just having to get held back every single year. Like there's one child that my friend tells me about. Um, she teaches the second grade and he's been held back twice now because his English isn't great. But he's so good in math. He's so good at creativity. But just because that English standard, he doesn't speak English at home. He comes from a cultural background and that sort of sets him apart from everyone else. And it's so sad to keep hearing the fact that he does get held back just because of that one aspect, because he's so, it's, he's lower in, in English. So it's, um, it's really interesting to see how schools sort of handle kids who aren't at an expected level that everyone else is supposed to be at. Well, you understand that schools were created to keep children out of the workforce. The original reason for schools was to not let a, an eight or a nine-year-old go to work in the mines because you could pay them a lot less <coughs> and you could take advantage of them. 
So now we put kids in schools and we say, well, what are we going to do there? Well, teach them some things, but don't teach them anything that's relevant to going out in the world and being successful, because when they leave school, then they'll, they'll take the jobs away from the people who are already out there. If education was truly a business, we would look at, at people who have created ideas in all areas that have made our lives better. And then we would say, well, what are those qualities that they share? And, uh, and, and then work backwards and say, well, those are the qualities we should be working on. But if we did that, we would spend very little time teaching reading and math. And we would spend some time, but we'd spend a whole lot more time teaching people how to think and how to solve problems and how to, and how to create something when nothing is there. Right. But we don't do that. And it continues to be the case that schools are a place to put kids until they're ready to be adults. I'm sorry to be so cynical, but uh, that's just kind of my view of it. No. And, and the real issue and problem, I shouldn't say the real everything Sam says is so real is to hold the kid back in second grade. And he's already been held back twice is a prescription as one person once told me a prescription for failure because think what it does to a kid who's going to school and sees kids he was in kindergarten with or first grade they move up what does that do to your self-image and it's it's you know holding kids back has often been seen as all they need is an extra year but sam especially an expert on learning you know differences and attentional problems they need more than that and it's almost like you're throwing the kid away. So I, I could. it's very upsetting to hear that example. What are they going to expect from this kid by the time he, or she, he, you said, is like 10 or 11 years old? And they're wondering why this kid doesn't like school. Because he goes every morning and it's the place where his deficits are highlighted, not his strengths. Right. Bob had a, a boy he worked with who would hide in the bushes every day. And when Bob asked him why, he told Bob he liked the bushes better than school. Yeah. Oh, well, that is a huge comparison to compare a bush to a whole school where you're meant to sort of embrace that environment. And I, I don't think your view on school is cynical at all. I think especially the way that I grew up and the way that I went to school, a lot of kids there, it's basically a parent's daycare center for teens and for young adults who are waiting to turn 18 and basically be kicked out of the house pretty much straight away. And the way that I, I've always seen school that way until I was homeschooled and until I, I completely had to find my own way of loving school and my own way of sort of learning at my own rate, at my own time without any distractions from kids who just really, you can tell, didn't want to be there. And I, I mean, I loved homeschooling mainly because I got to actually focus in school and I got to actually find my way of loving something that I didn't think I could love. And I went from, um, I think in public school, I was pretty much a C and D average in most of my subjects. And then the first year of homeschool and I came out in A's and B's. And that was a huge jump for me to find out that it wasn't the school life that I didn't like. It was just the environment of particular schools. And it was just finding that interest that I needed to have. In, in the front of our one of our textbooks on school consultation, 
I don't remember if it's the book that Bob and I did together or the one I did alone. I had a quote from a, a child I worked with who said, I really like to learn. I just don't like school. Mm. <clears throat> mm -hmm. yeah. 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 No, I completely, I completely understand that. Um, I know that we are pretty much going over time in terms of the recording, but I would love to talk about the last section. I think we mentioned this earlier about the book that you guys have coming up. Uh, and to talk a little exclusive as to see what the book is about and get probably get to see it from you guys as well. Well, you, we you have, have the, I hope you have the title in front of you. Well, we, we have, had one time we changed we have it. Two books okay. coming up. One, yeah, okay. one is a uh, and I people who can who are watching this can see this artwork. Um, wow. So this is our book for kids on tenacity titled Poppy and Graham's Quest uh, for Tenacity. And uh, this is children's books. It's a children's it's book for nine, to, for probably nine to 12 year olds. It's, it's sort of a graphic uh, comic as it were. Okay. So, and we're working with a wonderful uh, young artist, Anastasia Sweet. And so that's, that's, that we're hoping to have done by the end of the summer. But we, I've continued our, our thoughts about instincts. And I uh, kept searching for uh, certain behaviors that, that as a society we frown down on. Jealousy, rivalry, competition. Although we reinforce some of it, right? Um, and so uh, the working title of our new book is... Uh, Rivalry, jealousy, and competition, harnessing these qualities to live a happy and healthy life. Uh, mm -hmm. And what we're going to teach people how to do is, rather than to discard your sense of jealousy or rivalry or competition, to understand why you feel that way and how to harness those feelings in an affirmative way to make your life and the lives of people you love or the lives of people you work with or live with uh, or the children you're raising, how to make life better, rather than just say, don't be jealous, don't be rivalrous. Uh, this this, uh, this uh, idea actually started with uh, the cuckoo, because one, uh, not all cuckoos, but uh, one cuckoo in particular species lays its eggs in other birds' nests, and it lets other birds raise its young. And and, uh, and and then it just flies off. We called it the cuckoo syndrome, you know. Uh, and and, and uh, but we eventually realized that we wanted to do a book that was more than just about sibling rivalry. There's a reason to be rivalrous. You know, I was an only child. I didn't have to share resources with anyone. Bob was a twin, and and oh, Bob, wow. you know, Bob's whole whole childhood was is my brother getting more than me? <laughs> I'm telling Bob stories here, but he would. You know, he's bigger glass of milk than me. He's all of this rivalry, right? This, you know, he, Bob would have been better off as an only child. <laughs> more resources, more. Anyway, that's what the book's about. It'll be a while till it comes out. Rivalry, jealousy, and competition. Okay. How to make them work for you. And not in a bad way, but in a good way. No, I think um, I've got one sibling, as I mentioned, and we have a really good healthy competition with each other about degrees. And mm -hmm. um, she's finished her bachelor's and I 
I'm about a week away from finishing my master's degree. So we're seeing who, thank you, we're seeing who can get to a PhD a lot quicker. Um, <laughs> just because we want to be the first in our family to be called doctor. That's pretty much the only reason why we both signed up, are signing up to do a PhD later on in life. And yeah, so that is a healthy competition that's been going on pretty much right. since we both started school. Right, absolutely. It's a perfect example. Dina, you didn't know it, but you're going to be in the book. Okay, perfect. I would love to be in it. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I think I think that's a perfect way. Like honestly, I love the idea of healthy competition. I think people take it too far when it comes to putting two kids against each other. But when my sibling and I we're both always putting each other against each other, I think it's always it's always a nice and good competition to have with each other. So I love I love always trying to beat her in everything because she is she is a person who loves to rub it in my face when she does beat me. So, yes. <laughs> there you go. Well, I loved this conversation. I think this is a huge benefit of having two guests and talking about the same thing because I think it's so important to see both of your perspectives. I think I love seeing both the compassionate side, the relatable side, but also the statistics that sort of come about in it. And I think this is a go for the rest of the podcast shows that we will do on dual um on dual guests i think i love the idea of having both your perspectives so thank you so much the both of you for joining me and taking time out of your day and taking an evening an hour out of your evening to join me on the show today thank you for having thank us you. And, and just if people are interested we have a website for the book tenacity it's just tenacity.com okay and, yes and uh Bob's got his website and I have mine and we have lots of free resources and articles. It's just drrobertbrooks.com and samgoldstein.com. And both of us were on the web before there was a web. So if you put <laughs> our names in, we come up first page. We didn't have to pay anybody. Perfect. I, I will always ask that question at the end of the episode to sort of have the websites. And I'm so glad that you beat me to it. Oh, okay. <laughs> So, yes, thank you so much for joining me. And, you know, if any of the guests, any of the audience members have any questions, we'll definitely send them over because I'm sure that there will be plenty of questions on things that we didn't get to discuss and on things that probably I have missed in the discussion as well. So we'll definitely send those through to you. And, and hopefully of, we'll. Yeah. And both of us have have uh, have toured Australia a couple of times. Not in a while, so I'm always open for an invitation. Oh, we'd love to have you in the studio the minute that we that minute that you do. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I love what you do. Yeah. Yes, I well, I love the idea of living in another country, but I will take an outsider's perspective on it any day. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening, guys, and I will see you guys in the next episode. You've been listening to Raising Parents. The Parenting Science Insights Podcast, produced by the Parenting Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes are available from 10 Life Management Perspectives and can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcasting apps available on your smartphone. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, share, and subscribe to our channel so that other people can find it and we can continue to provide quality content. More of our work can be found on our website at pa.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. 
I'm Dina Sargent, and thanks for tuning in.